Good morning, family of God. Hey, let's bow our heads one more time and pray, and I'll invite you to join me in asking that the Holy Spirit will help us to hear the words of Jesus today. I'll just be quiet for a moment, then I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we continue worshiping you today, we acknowledge that you are merciful and gracious, just and righteous. You're all wise. You provide for everything that we need. Your plans never fail. And we thank you for the forgiveness of sins we have in Jesus. We ask now that you would cleanse us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to hear the word of God rightly today. So give me grace, Lord, to say everything that you want me to say in the way that you want me to say it and nothing else. And I pray that you give us all grace by the Holy Spirit, not to resist your word, that our attention would not wander from your word, but that with minds that are engaged in understanding and with hearts that are soft and receptive, we would hear the word of the Lord and be transformed by it today for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus has been teaching the crowds and our story begins today with A man from the crowd piping up saying, teacher. But then he proceeds to talk to Jesus in a way that indicates this man really is not interested in being taught by Jesus. He calls him teacher, but he's not here to be taught today. What he's here for is to try and get Jesus on his side in a family fight. And It's all about money. Sometimes families are ripped apart by money. So right from the beginning, the text confronts us with this reality that we can come to the right place for the wrong reasons. If we ask the question, why are we all here today? I hope we would say we're here for Jesus. That's why I'm here. Is that why you're here, church? Everybody say it's all about Jesus. We're here for Jesus. We want to worship him. We want to hear his word. We want to trust him. We want to obey him. But we can come to Jesus and praise him with titles and then interact with him that suggest we don't quite understand what we're saying. You ever been there? But theoretically, if I say teacher, that means I'm here to be taught by Jesus. If I say savior, it means I know I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. If I say master, it means I want to submit to your authority. This man has an agenda and he wants Jesus to get on his team. It's clear from his words that what he's most focused on is money. So right from the beginning, I think it's appropriate for each of us to ask, how am I approaching Jesus today? What do I want from him? Maybe even to just say that prayer right now. Holy Spirit, help me to see how am I approaching Jesus today? What is it that I most want from him. As I think about this man, a contrasting story came to my mind. It's about Thomas Aquinas. Some of you know who Thomas Aquinas is, famous Christian teacher, theologian, philosopher, lived about 800 years ago. And he was a professor of Bible at various places. Um, And 
wrote a lot of theology, what would be the equivalent to about 500 books today. A brilliant, brilliant man, but also a man whose life was profoundly focused on knowing God. He wanted to know God. So he lived a life of prayer and study and teaching God's church. And, you know, some of the ancient Christians stories accumulate around their lives that lots of miracle stories. And when you hear it as a modern person, you're kind of skeptical. Did that really happen? Did that really happen? There's not a lot of stories like that about Thomas, but there's one story that comes to my mind every now and then. And here's the story. He was kneeling in prayer and somebody from his spiritual community walked by and saw him like in a chapel area praying. And the person would later tell the story that as he was watching Thomas spending time in prayer in the presence of God, he heard a voice, an audible voice, which seemed to be coming vaguely from the direction of the image of Christ that was in that chapel. And it said, Thomas, you have written well of me. What do you want from me? Thomas, you have written well of me. What do you want from me? Now, whether you think this story is historically true or you're skeptical, doesn't really matter that much. I want to ask you the question. If you were praying and God spoke to you audibly during your prayer, you've been doing good. That would already be a great prayer session, wouldn't it? And if he says, you've been doing well, you have honored me. Now, what do you want from me? I just want you to think for a second, what would you say? This is kind of like Solomon. Remember the story of Solomon where God said, ask of me what you want? What would you say if you're praying and Jesus appears to you and says, you've been doing well. What do you want from me? Thomas responded with three words. Only yourself, Lord. Only yourself, Lord. That story represents a kind of spiritual maturity and wisdom that we're all hopefully approaching. In our call to worship this morning, we prayed from Psalm 34, which said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thomas was a person who had tasted and seen that the Lord was good and the Lord was better than anything else he wanted. So that all he really wanted was Jesus. I don't want something from Jesus. I want Jesus. Only yourself, Lord. But the man in this story has not yet experienced that reality. He's looking at Jesus as a means to an end. So Jesus takes this opportunity to teach. And he first speaks directly to the man. Then he speaks to the disciples and the crowd who are around him. When he speaks to the man, verse 14, he says, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And in essence, he's saying, Who am I to you? Who am I to you? Do you think I'm Judge Judy? Do you think I'm a, a judge in a petty civil disputes court? I didn't mean to diss Judge Judy just now. But uh, it, is that who you think I am? Is that what you came for? Who, Jesus is saying, who am I and who am I to you? That's, again, a good question for us to think about. He, in effect, is saying I could be so much more to you. If you're. Coming to me as teacher, I could teach you. I could show you God. I could show you yourself and the meaning of your life. If you come to me as Savior, I could save you from the power of sin, Satan, and death. I could give you eternal life. But who made me 
the judge in your petty domestic dispute. It's, that's the challenge to the man. And then he takes this as an opportunity in love to teach all of us. We all need to be taught. So verse 15, and he said to them. Verse 14, he spoke to him, to the individual man. But now he says to the crowd and to the disciples, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You might want to circle, underline that word. That's a key word. Everybody say covetousness. Covetousness. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What is covetousness? Well, we could define it in a lot of deep ways, but a simple definition would be covetousness is when I think and feel like I need more stuff to be happy and satisfied. That's covetousness. I think and feel like I need more stuff to be happy and satisfied. The word is usually applied to desire for money or the things money can buy. Although you remember in the Ten Commandments, it is extended further. Don't covet your neighbor's spouse. If I just had that person's husband or that person's wife, then I would be happy and joyful and satisfied. So really, whatever it is where we have an inordinate longing, a desire which is not grateful, it's not content, it's not directed in the right direction, but saying, I, want, I would need this thing to be alive. What we've got on our hands is covetousness. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, covetousness is idolatry. We're looking to something or someone for a, our source of life and salvation and satisfaction when we know there's only one actual source of life Salvation and satisfaction. Who is it? It's God. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. That's right. Your life, Jesus says, is not about the stuff that you own. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, there's a certain like baseline teenager level of dealing with this. That's kind of like if I just had cooler clothes and a cool enough car, then my life would be full. But then we get older and it might get more subtle But a lot of us just keep living for money and the stuff it can buy. We're just trying to survive to get to the next paycheck or to accumulate more stuff. Maybe it's about the status that our possessions can give to us. For a lot of us, it's probably just about a sense of security. I won't have to stress anymore if I have enough. But money is a bad refuge because money is like a bird that flies away. Money is a poor place to try and find security for your life. As I was reflecting on these words of Jesus, I, my mind went back to 1953. W.E.R.D. radio station in Atlanta. It was the first black-owned radio station in America. And they asked Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to give a series of talks that summer of 1953. And the, what, the topic he chose to talk about was the false gods of America. And Dr. King loved America. He spoke all the time about the greatness of America. But he also knows, knows that every culture is tempted to have its own idols that we worship. And as he was describing those idols, he said some things that maybe we wouldn't have thought of. For example, one of the idols he talks about is science. And Dr. King was not anti-science. Science is good. But he says, in America, we're very focused on the question how, but not enough question, focus on the question Why? We seek technological power, but for what? Is it to dominate others? Is it to control? He says if our how power 
So our technological power exceeds our theological depth. We've got a lot of how, but no why. We might destroy ourselves. That still feels a little relevant, doesn't it, 70 years later? But one of the gods, you probably have already guessed this, the false gods he talked about is money. The false god of money. July 19th, 1953, he gave the talk. And the whole thing is good. You could look it up online and read it, but don't do that while I'm preaching. Do that this evening. I'm just going to read you one paragraph, though. The false god of money. Dr. King said this. We do not have to look very far to see the tragic consequences which develop when men worship the almighty dollar. First, it causes men to be more concerned about making a living than making a life. That's a phrase to think about, isn't it? Sounds kind of like Jesus. Men's, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Dr. King continues, this is the danger forever threatening our capitalist economy. He was also not anti-capitalism, by the way. But he's saying this is the particular idol that we tend to be drawn to, which places so much emphasis on the profit motive under more or less competitive conditions. There is the danger in such a system that men will become so involved in the money-getting process that they will unconsciously forget to pursue those great eternal values which make life worth living. When men arrive at a point of making money a god, they become more concerned with what they can get out of society than what they can give to society in terms of service. How many individuals do we find entering important professions more concerned about the money they can make than the service they can render? How many young people do we find entering colleges and universities more concerned with gaining methods and techniques for making money than gaining methods and techniques for living a worthwhile life? When men bow down and worship at the shrine of money, they are being deprived of their most precious endowment, the possibility of living life in its fullness and its endless beauty. Money can be a powerful tool for good or for evil, but it's, it's a terrible God. That's the point. Now, Jesus wants to give this man a better gift than money. Jesus wants to give this man deep joy, real security, real life. He wants to give him forgiveness and purpose and a relationship with God. But this is going to require a total shifting of his priorities, a reorientation of his soul. Another way to deal with the questions that we began with today, we asked, um, who is Jesus to you? What do you want from Jesus? Another way to think about this is sometimes we come to Jesus with our desires preloaded and saying, give me this. And sometimes what needs to happen is we need to have our desires themselves transfigured. So Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable to help us think more deeply about this. And it's a parable about two kinds of riches. If you want a sermon title, by the way, I'll give it to you now, halfway through. Two kinds of riches. Two kinds of wealth. Picking up in verse 16, here's the parable, the story Jesus tells. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So here's the thing. We'll pause right there. This man is rich. But you need to ask the question, what kind of rich is he? What kind of wealth does he have and what kind of wealth does he not have? He has a lot of material wealth. He's a farmer. He's got so much crops he doesn't know what to do with. And of course, those crops can be turned into money and money can be turned into other things. He has excessive material wealth. 
That's his problem. Some of us have been praying to have that problem. But that's his problem. He doesn't know what to do about it. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store all my crops? I mean, that very question tells us a lot about the priorities, doesn't it? He's obviously not thinking about a lot of things. He's not thinking, for example, about the plight of the poor, hungry people in the town where he lives. There's lots of people all around him who could benefit from his excess. He's not thinking about how his resources could be wielded to bring glory to God and blessing to people other than himself. His ways of viewing his, his way of viewing his possessions is all about him. I mean, I can imagine some development officers for nonprofit organizations in this room who could have better suggestions, couldn't they? All of us trying to do some fundraising to support mission. He's not thinking, hey, instead of a bigger barn, why don't we give resources to advance the kingdom of God? Verse 18 continues with the story. Here's his idea. And he said, I will do this. I will tear, tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods And I will say to my soul, I will say to my soul, by the way, Psalms in the Bible teaches us to talk to our souls. Talk to yourself. Doesn't mean that you're crazy necessarily. Depends on what you say to yourself. This guy is a little crazy. But everybody, let me hear you say, talk to yourself. You're supposed to talk to yourself. All of us are doing it all the time anyway in our heads. Sometimes I do it out loud without knowing and people think I'm crazy. The other day I was in the car talking on the phone and I thought I had hung up and I started praying and the other person said, you know, I'm still here, right? Uh, I didn't know I was talking out loud, but that was not in my notes. I just told you that story for some reason. He's talking to himself and here's here's the script going on in his head. We've got to pay attention to the thoughts going on in our heads. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. That's the gospel he's preaching to himself. What gospel are you preaching to yourself? So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. As I was meditating on this passage of scripture, I really kind of focused in on those words, relax and merry. Everybody say relax. Let me hear you say merry. As I think about these two words... It occurs to me that what this guy wants is peace and joy. Question, let's be honest, just be honest, who would like some peace? Who would like some joy? Did you know that Thomas Aquinas said that you cannot help but live for peace and joy? (laughs) Since I quoted Thomas Aquinas at the beginning. All of us are seeking it. We all live for happiness. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. Living for peace and joy is no problem. But... It really matters what do we think is going to bring us joy. What do we think is going to bring us real peace? He wants peace. He wants joy. But he thinks that money can give him lasting peace and joy. Or we could say he's trusting in money to make him secure so that he can have the peace and joy he's always wanted in life. He's trusting in money. Without knowing it, he's preaching to himself a gospel that says, you've got plenty of money now. And he's praying unspoken prayers. Money, you are my refuge. 
You're my source of security. That's the idolatry here. He's trusting in money to make him secure so he can experience peace and joy. And that's where he's desperately wrong. And the next verse, of course, says this. But God said to him, fool. That's a strong word, isn't it? Fool. Jesus is trying to make us wise. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He's a fool because he's not thinking about God and he's not thinking about other people. He's just thinking about the peace that comes from not having to stress about money or not having to work. He's thinking about the joy that he thinks he can get through, the things that money can buy, food, drink, etc. And he thinks he's going to get to kick back and relax for a long time. He has miscalculated his lifespan. We don't know how long he thought he was going to live, but it was more than one night for sure. Or else he wouldn't have bothered with the barns. What makes this man a fool is worth pondering. I have a question. What if he didn't die that night? Would he still be a fool or would he be wise? What if he lived another 50 years relaxing, eating, drinking, and being merry? Would he still be a fool? Or would he be wise? In other words, is the error here a miscalculation of his lifespan? Or is it something deeper? Well, verse 21 helps us answer that question. So is the one who, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want to encourage you to underline those three words, rich toward God. There's two kinds of riches in this parable. Two kinds of riches in this text. What kind of rich... Are you focused on what kind of wealthy do you want to be? He was rich in money, but he was not rich towards God. What makes him a fool is not a miscalculated lifespan. What makes this man a fool is that he has chosen to lock himself in a self-centered prison. Where he cares not about God or other people. He has sought salvation and security in all the wrong places. He cares about having a lot of possessions so he could take it easy and live a comfortable life. But he doesn't care about things that really matter. He doesn't care about the glory of God, the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't care about the cries of the poor all around him. He's rich in money, but poor in soul. He's rich in possessions, but he's not rich towards God. If he lived another 100 years relaxing and spending all his money on good food and good drink, he would still be an empty man who was living for precisely nothing. And then he would die. So Jesus is teaching us that to become truly wise, we've got to decide what kind of wealth is important to us. Am I living for material wealth or spiritual wealth? Now, as we think about those two kinds of riches, I'm, I'm going to do a little quiz in here. You can answer out loud. If you get it wrong, we'll pretend you didn't say it. Okay. Can you be poor in money and rich towards God? Can you be poor in money and poor towards God? Can you be rich in money and rich towards God? Can you be rich in money and rich towards God? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. In the Bible, we're told that there are different temptations that come from different states. Being poor has its temptations. Being rich has its temptations. In the wisdom literature of Scripture, it talks about the blessings of the righteous poor, but it also talks about financial prosperity as something that can be a blessing and a tool to bless other people. But I think it's worth noticing that when God became flesh and dwelt among us, what he mostly has to say is warning us against the temptations that come with material prosperity. He warns us that being financially rich is very tempting. As a matter of fact, just a few minutes ago, I was at, in the youth room playing Micaopoly with the teenagers, which was, if you don't know about it, just ask Andrew or any of the youth. They'll tell you all about it. We just got through, finished studying the book of Micah. And there were, it's like Monopoly, but with different rules. But the rules are different depending on which character he gave you. You could be a, the poor, the widow, the rich oppressor, or the rulers of Israel. Now, even if you haven't studied Micah over the last couple of months, I bet you could get this quiz right. Since you guys are on fire, here you go. Which one do you think was winning for the most of the game? The widow or the rich oppressor? But then when it, 9, 10.30 hit, and we had to come in here, and all of a sudden the day of the Lord came. Guess who walked away full and happy? The widow and the poor. My, my poor daughter, Abigail, was a rich oppressor. She felt so guilty the whole game. Stacking up, stacking up $500 Monopoly bills, knowing that judgment was coming. Taken, taking it from the widows. But here's the thing. Micaopoly was a silly way to review a serious text about a serious problem in the world. A lot of people live for the idolatry of money. And Jesus warns us that sometimes the more we have, the more tempting it is to trust in it as our God. Which means if we've got a lot, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you, but don't build bigger barns. That's what it means. Think, God, you have entrusted this to me, but I want to trust in you, not in these resources. And how do I steward what you have given me for your glory? I can imagine this man being rich towards God. And when that big old harvest came in, instead of thinking, let's build a bigger barn, he thought, OK, I just got 100 bushels of barley or whatever it is. My barn can only hold 20. That means I've got 80 now. Let's give 40 of them to the poor around us. Let's sell 40 of them. This, the synagogue needs some new scrolls. We're going to pay for some, you know, the kids in the synagogue. School. He can start dreaming about how to bless the community. He would have been rich towards God. To put this in a really personal way, some of us in here are broke. I won't make you identify yourself. If you are poor, here's the word that Jesus is saying. I love you. God loves you. You are rich in Christ if you'll just trust in me. I will satisfy your soul forever. If you're a person who has a lot of resources, I think the word of Jesus to you is still, God loves you. Jesus is saying, I love you. And those resources have been entrusted to you to do good. Watch out for the temptation to trust in them. Watch out for the temptation. You've been made to enjoy relationship with God, and only that can satisfy you. Don't be locked in a prison of self-centeredness. Don't be locked into trusting something that can't give you the security and peace and joy that you seek. 
One last quiz question. This will be my last quiz question for the day. Is it possible for you, no matter how much money is in the bank, to be covetous? I've done it. There have been times in my life where I preached sermons about this topic and was feeling real self-righteous and judgmental towards people with more money than me and then drove down the street and saw someone's house and was like, man, that would have been nice for my kids. I was like, I'm literally covering that guy's house while I drive down the street thinking about this sermon that I just preached about not covering your neighbor's house. The heart is deceitful. That's what I'm saying. It's a form of idolatry. So, what do you do today if you are covetous? I'm just going to throw out there as a hypothesis, covetousness is probably at least a little bit in all of us. If you're not being dominated by it, praise God, but that temptation is going to be there for you in life. If I just had more of this, if I just had that relationship, if I just had this resource, then I'll be happy and secure. What do you do about it? Well, Two thoughts before we wrap up about what you do about it. One, sneak peek for next week. We're going to keep reading and Jesus is going to keep talking to us about this. But Jesus teaches us in this chapter, if you want to try to inoculate yourself against the deadly virus of covetousness, then make it a habit of life to pursue greater simplicity for the purpose of greater generosity. Make it a habit of life to always be thinking, how can I live on less in order to give more to advance the kingdom of God and bless people? I'm not making this up. Look down at verse 33. Luke 12:33. Jesus says, sell your possessions. This is not the story of the rich young ruler. He's talking to all of his disciples. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. Treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Money bags that don't wear out. Treasure in the heavens that does not fail. No moth destroys. You don't have to worry about rust. He's challenging us to pursue greater simplicity for the sake of greater generosity. This is the opposite of how we tend to think. We tend to think, how do I get a little bit more so I can spend a little bit more? Then I need to get a little bit more so I can spend a little bit more. Over the course of my life, I have known people who owned nothing. All they had was the clothes on their back and they had no home. I have known people who were the working poor or who were living on government assistance, who had just barely enough to make it from month to month. I've known people who are lower middle class and who are upper middle class. I've known people who are making an income that those homeless people would think would make them rich, but they feel stressed about money all the time. I've known a few people who made hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I've known some millionaires. I've actually known some billionaires also. Billions of dollars. Guess where the line is where people feel like they've got enough. It does not exist. It does not exist. You can always want more. And the heart is such that whenever we get to that next level, we think, how can I make a little more so I can spend a little more or so I can have a little bigger nest egg? And Jesus says, how can you pursue greater simplicity for the sake of greater generosity? But here's, I think, an even deeper way to fight this fight. If you want to fight covetousness in your heart, You fix your eyes on Jesus on the cross. First of all, that's the place where you can be forgiven. Who's happy you can be forgiven for your covetousness? 
Thank God for Jesus bearing the weight of all my sin and all of its consequences on the cross. Thank God for that. So I could be forgiven. All of us can be forgiven through faith in Jesus. But the cross of Jesus is more than that. The cross of Jesus is also the place where the infinitely glorious God who owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Became poor for our salvation. Clothed himself in the weakness of humanity. And then allowed himself to be literally stripped naked to where he owns nothing and nailed to a tree for our salvation. He became nothing because he loved you. Because he loved me. And when I'm thinking, oh, I just need a little bit more so I can be happy. If I look back to the cross, my my heart tends to go, thank you, God, for loving me. You're enough. You're enough. You're enough. And the more I fix my eyes on that place, the more my prayer starts sounding like Thomas Aquinas. Only yourself, Lord. That's what I want. Only yourself, Lord. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to respond in worship with one more song to God's word. Before we do that, I want to have a moment to pray. I'll just invite you to be silent. And I'm going to pray for you. And let's just pray at this time that the Holy Spirit will show us where there's idols in our hearts, where there's covetousness in our hearts, and help us to fix our gaze Back on Jesus, because he is the one who can give us lasting peace, lasting joy and lasting security. Our Father, we confess there are corners of our hearts that still need to be transformed by the gospel. We trust in you, but sometimes we also trust in other things where we should be trusting in you. So we do continue to come back to you, thanking you for the forgiveness that there is in Jesus, but also praying that your Holy Spirit would shine light into the dark places of our hearts. Help us to see the abundant generosity that you have towards us. To be confident in the way that you will provide for everything we need, for everything our families need, so that we won't be looking in all the wrong places for security and peace and joy. Lord, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would be doing a thing in our hearts, even now and as we sing, to just kind of break the chains of greed, break the chains of covetousness in our hearts, that we would be a sanctified people who is generous beyond what makes sense on paper because we know a God whom we trust as our provider. Help us to be a people who with joy are continually seeking greater simplicity for the sake of greater generosity. And then give us wisdom how to steward every resource you entrust to us in a way that brings glory to your name, advances your kingdom, and brings blessing and help to those who are hurting all around us. And Lord, for those in this room who I know are struggling. They don't have a lot at all. Lord, would you meet them also 
meet all of us where we are today. To encourage us that being rich in God is what matters. And that you will provide for us. And I pray that you will meet every need in this room. And help us to be a community that those who have plenty are eager to help those who have less. So that Christ can be exalted through the way we love one another. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.